Now, good evening. It's good to see you all, and uh, especially good to see such a turnout from Livingston. I understand you've put your meeting off tonight in order to be here, and we're deeply grateful to you for that. It's a great encouragement to me personally, and an encouragement to the saints here, and I trust it will be a blessing to us all. Now, we're going to read, to begin with, please, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, and we're going to continue with the study of... Uh, how creatorial principles, principles that were first displayed in God's creation, are the foundation for many of the truths that we believe in practice in the local assembly of God's people. We want you to see that uh, what we call local assembly truth doesn't stand in isolation. It's in fact probably the pinnacle of divine purpose in the creation of the world and all God's dealings with the world, uh, and we want to leave impressions of the tremendous privilege and dignity that belongs to us by being members of a local assembly of God's people. Now, last evening, we were thinking, uh, started to think about how the glory of God had been revealed in creation, and uh, when it came to those attributes of deity the things that make God, God, without which he couldn't be God, his omniscience, his, his knowledge of all things, his om, uh, omnipresence, his presence in every place at every time, and his uh, omnipotence, his, his power to do anything and everything that is in keeping with his character. And we finished off the meeting by looking at Psalm 139, where those three things are so beautifully brought before us, uh, but maybe to our surprise, in dealing with the omnipotence of God, the psalmist didn't take us to the vastness of space or the planets and the stars all hurtling round in their divinely appointed orbits, but he took us into the quietness and the secrecy of the womb. And he spoke to us about the formation of a body, the tremendous, well, we called it the project management. That wasn't, that wasn't to be irreverent. It was just to wonder at that verse which showed us that God has appointed the very days in which everything during the gestation of a child is brought into place. And from that, we can readily understand that God is a God of immense order. There is nothing haphazard with him. There's purpose in everything. So, with that in mind, and the formation of a child in the womb, we, we come to the truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. just want to read a few selected verses from this chapter. And at verse number 12 of the chapter, Paul writes, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, constitute one body, so also is Christ. For, by, or, or the preposition really is better translated in, for in one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now we don't make that change just on a whim, and it's a perfectly legitimate change. Remember our English Bible is a translation. So the truth of this verse is that the Holy Spirit wasn't the baptizer, it wasn't by one spirit were we all baptized. 
He wasn't the baptizer. He was the medium in which we were baptized. See, when you were baptized as a Christian, assuming you are baptized as a Christian, when you were baptized as a Christian, the medium in which you were baptized was water. And you were immersed in that water and you were brought up again out of it. Now, this reference in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, is to the day of Pentecost. It is to the time when 120 believers were gathered in an upper room waiting for the promise of the Lord to be fulfilled, that he, having gone back to the Father, would send another comforter. And as they waited there and as they prayed, so suddenly they were aware of a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. It was the sound of a great breath, a breathing. And the scripture says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, filled the place where they were. So let's suggest it was a room, something like this, and they were in the room, and suddenly the room in which they were gathered was filled with the Holy Spirit. So they were quite literally immersed in him. He filled the place where they were. The Lord had promised in his upper room ministry, as he spoke about the Holy Spirit, he said that he will be with you and in you. And Acts chapter 2 records that he filled the place where they were. They were quite literally baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was the medium in which they were baptized. And at the same time, the scripture tells us that not only did he fill the place where they were, but he filled each of them individually. So he was with them and in them. That one occasion of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is historic. It happened on the day of Pentecost. It happened in Jerusalem. And it happened for the formation, the birth of the church. Again, we go back to the creatorial order. And when God fashioned man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground, there is this lifeless sculpture of a man formed by the fingers of God. And then the scripture says, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, and man became a living soul. That same mighty breath that brought life into Adam now brought life into a new body, it's not a physical body, it's a spiritual one, and it's called the church. So that one-off occasion of the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And Paul now says to these Corinthian believers, for in one spirit are we all baptized into one body. And those Corinthians might just have said, excuse me, Paul, excuse me before you go on. Sorry, what's that about? And he would say, well, this is uh, what I've taught you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It took place in Jerusalem. Uh, but, but Paul, I've never been to Jerusalem. Ah, no, he said, no. But we were all baptized into the one spirit at conversion. He might have said to them something like this. Perhaps to the person who's wondering now, did I really have a part to play in that baptism in Jerusalem in the upper room? Paul might say to him, tell me, brother, were you in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned? No, no, I wasn't there, Paul. Well, no, but did you come into all the effect of what happened there? 
well, yes, I did. I'm a sinner. Uh, and uh, I've got the same nature as Adam. Exactly. You weren't there at the time, but because of your link with that man by birth, everything that happened there has had its effect upon you. It's as though you were there. And tell me again, dear brother, asking the question, were you there at Calvary? Paul might have asked. No, no, I've never been to Jerusalem at all. Ah, so you weren't at Calvary when Christ died. But tell me, brother, did you come into the good of everything that happened at Calvary? Oh, I did, Paul. I'm saved. Well, exactly. So you weren't at Calvary, but you came into the good of everything that happened there at Calvary. And how was that? It's because you've been born again. You were linked with Adam by natural birth, and you're linked with Christ by new birth. So that everything that happened then happened to you. And so it's a principle that we might call the principle of identification. Identification. Many being identified in the acts of one man. By one man, Adam's sin came into the world, and death by sin. We all came under the effect of that. Every priest, Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes those same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But this man, when he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. This man, one man, but we're identified with him, not by natural birth, but by spiritual birth. And so by the same token, we are identified with those original men who were there in the upper room. My dear brother, my dear sister, don't be in any way deluded by so-called Pentecostal error. There is no individual baptism of the Holy Spirit. The moment that you got saved by the grace of God, you became identified with these originals who were there in, in Jerusalem. And so Paul can say to people in Corinth, in Greece, who had never been anywhere near Jerusalem, he can say to them, for in one spirit are we all baptized into one body. So the very moment you were saved, you came into the good of that, the Holy Spirit came to indwell you, and you became a member of the body of Christ. So, Paul makes the point in verse 14, the body is not one member, but many. And he goes on to speak about different parts of the body and their reaction to other parts and how the body couldn't work if it was all a foot or a hand or something like this. And uh, he makes the point again in verse 20. But now are they many members, yet one body. So he's talking about variety in unity, variety of functions, variety of shapes and sizes, one body. One body. And he says then, as he has repeated that principle in verse 20, when we come to uh, verse 18, but now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. Remember how we thought a little last evening, if you were here, in Psalm 139, how that God was managing the formation of that child in the womb and all those 
incalculable numbers of blood vessels and, and uh, all that neurological wiring and, and the whole framework of the child and just the sheer wonderful complexity of it all. And God was just doing everything in order. Everything at the right time, everything coming into being. Now that is being spoken of spiritually in 1 Corinthians 12. It's another body. It's not a physical body. It's the body of Christ. The spiritual body of Christ. Now the Lord Jesus has a physical body. He has a material body. He's taken humanity into heaven. When he became a man, he became what he'd never been before. But now that he is man, he'll never cease to be that. He's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he has a material body as a man in heaven. But he also is the spiritual head of a spiritual body. And we are members of that body. And the point I want to stress now from verse number 18 is the precision of it all. Now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body. See the exactness of the language. He hasn't set the major framework and left the rest to some kind of chance. God has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. So you've been set in the body. If you're a Christian, you have been set in the body as it hath pleased him. It means that you and I are the individual subjects, not only of divine love and kindness and grace and compassion, but we are the individual subjects of divine purpose. And God has set every member in the body according as it hath pleased him. That word set is an interesting word. It's the word which, when you uh, come to the scriptures that deal with the burial of the Lord Jesus, it speaks of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and having taken the body of the Lord off the cross and having wrapped it in linen and with the hundredweight of spices and so forth, it says, and they came and they laid him in a new tomb wherein never before was man laid. How do you suppose those two men laid the body of the Lord Jesus? Did they just put him in that tomb like you might put groceries in the back of your car? Did they, did they just put him in the tomb like you might just put something you've just used in the garage? Or did those men with tremendous tenderness and care lay that body in the tomb? You know the answer to that. Very carefully, very precisely, very gently, with great purpose, they laid the body of the Lord Jesus in the tomb. That's the word that is used here. And so Paul says, it's a mighty verse this, Now hath God set, he has laid with tremendous precision, every one of them in the body as it hath pleased him. The, the story's told, it's apocryphal. I mean, it's one of these stories that's in every culture, I suppose. 
But the story's told about the lady who boasted she'd had the same yard brush for 60 years. It's had five new heads and it's had a couple of new handles, but it's the same brush. Well, now, if what the medics tell me is right, and I suppose it is, that the man who stands before you now, who was born as a healthy little baby boy back in Plymouth, England in 1954, that little baby that grew into the man who stands before you now is not actually the same. Because every cell in my body has been replaced. And most of them have been replaced many, many times. And that's true of your body as well. So that there is this constant work going on of cells that die off and cells that replace them. And the body that was born is the body that grows to maturity. And yet, in a wonderful way, it's at the end of that process, not really the same body at all, because all the cells that made it up at the beginning have gone and new ones have taken their place. And you think of the body of Christ, that spiritual entity that owes its life to God and owes its life to Christ, and and that spiritual entity began with those 120 believers who were there in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, and then there were 3,000 saved, and there were many hundreds saved in other times and days during those early days, and, and so the believers multiplied. The Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. And in the fullness of time they died. But then others were getting saved. And they've died. But others were getting saved. And they've died. And so it has gone on down through the centuries. The cells of that body are being replaced. See, Paul poses the question, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he he says in that verse, which is questioned by so many, uh, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? And some suggest now the idea is, why were these people hazarding their lives? Why were they... Why were they willing to be martyred? Why were they willing to have their lives taken in the cause of Christ if it wasn't for the fact that as one rank of believers died off, another stepped forward to replace them? Have you ever thought about the fact that the vast, vast majority of the body of Christ, every one of these members whom God has individually set with precision in the body, the vast majority of them are already in the glory. I don't know. Pick a number. 99.99% of the entire body of Christ is already with him. And should the Lord come tonight, as he well might, and I feel sure the Lord must be coming soon, then, then isn't it amazing that we would have the great privilege of being amongst that number that is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as they which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. We're just such a small, tiny percentage of all those members of the body. So Paul's made his point. He says, now look, 
The church of which you became a part when you got saved isn't an uh, organization. It's an organism. It's living. And the very God who saved you has placed you with great precision. There's order about the whole thing. And now, as Paul speaks about all that and the variety and the unity of it all, he says in verse 27 of this chapter, Now ye, that is, you Corinthian believers, are body of Christ and members in particular. Now, our good authorised version says, ye are the body of Christ, but clearly the Corinthian believers weren't the body of Christ. Christ doesn't have many bodies. The, uh, in the Greek language, the definite article isn't there. The, the word the is not there. It's just simply, now ye are body of Christ. You Corinthians, you dear saints from Livingston, are body of Christ. You dear saints here from Midland Park, you are body of Christ. Saints from Flushing, body of Christ. The character of the local assembly of Christians has the character of the whole thing. Your body of Christ. So now what is true of the whole thing is true of the local expression of it. Now, this is one of those occasions, I guess, where we preach to the converted in that sense. Because you're here and thank you for being here. But you see, this teaching, the local is the expression of the dispensational. The local is the expression of the whole thing. So if it's true of the whole thing that God has set every member in the body according as it hath pleased him, that's true of the local as well. God has set every member in a local assembly according as it hath pleased him. See, a common thing we find today is that dear believers in the Lord Jesus, maybe they're moving with work or just moving to a bigger home or, or a different neighborhood or whatever, and so often we hear them saying, you say, well, where are you going to go? Uh, where will you be in fellowship? Well, we're looking around, you know. In fact, they don't even say today, we're looking to see where we think we would be happiest. So often what we hear today is, well, we're looking for somewhere where the kids will be happy. Is that your estimation of God's assembly? God has set every member in the body according as it hath pleased him. Have you got a conviction that God has you where he wants you to be? Is it perhaps that the local assembly is just something of convenience? Do you know, there's a tremendous, a tremendous challenge would come to each of our hearts, I think, from this. Because, you see, if I take the view, well, really, I just want to go to a place where I think I would be happiest. Who on earth said that the right of a Christian was to put their happiness above anything else? And yet, mind you, there's writings about that. Men like John Piper today would be teaching in their books and in their programs that all God wants for you is your happiness. No, what God wants from you is your obedience. And if there's truth in this scripture that God has set every member in the body according as it hath pleased him, 
And if there are members that aren't conforming to that, then they're being simply disobedient. And it follows, doesn't it, that if the body is missing certain members, it's not going to function properly. And then those of us that are in the assemblies where God has placed us, and, and we might look and say, well, the reason I'm in this assembly is because I happen to get that job. But, but, but who, who was it who got you that job? Do you believe that your life really is being ordered by the Lord? If there's truth in this, then it means that I, as a believer in local assembly fellowship, have a duty before God to give that local assembly my absolute commitment. He set me there. And he set me there for a purpose. There shouldn't be any... There's no thought in the Bible ever of a redundant Christian. Well, I don't really have a role to fulfill. I don't really have a part to play. Now, we are in danger of generating that kind of thought largely through misunderstanding of these very chapters that we've been reading. Because we're reading in a section of 1 Corinthians that begins in chapter 10, it goes through to the end of chapter 14, and it's the very core and the very heart of biblical teaching about a New Testament assembly. And what has happened is that men have looked into these verses and... uh, the view has often been taught out of these verses that there are certain Christians to whom God has given particular gifts. And in fact, when I was a young man, we used to have it taught to us that when we got saved, we were given a gift. It was up to us to find out what that was and develop it. Well, we just took it. That's what our men taught us. And so we took it and when I was a younger man, in my teens particularly, late, uh, later teens, that troubled me immensely. I was looking for that gift. I, I was never taught how to recognize it. I was never taught how I would find it. I was just taught that I'd been given it and that I had to develop it. And the consequence of not being able to find this mysterious package within me the result of that was that I began to seriously doubt whether I was ever saved at all. Because if you're saved, you're given a gift, so if you can't find the gift, you can't be saved. You see, that, that was my thinking. And then as I've grown up a bit, what I've noticed is that very often in a local assembly, there will be, particularly as far as the men are concerned, there will be those who say, well, he's got a gift and I don't. So he's got to be committed to the assembly because he's a preacher or a teacher or he's one of the overseers. But I don't have a gift. You know, I I, I can't preach and I can't teach and, and so it doesn't really matter whether I'm there or not much, does it? So it's a very destructive form of teaching. What 1 Corinthians 12 does absolutely teach is that the local assembly of believers, now it doesn't matter whether there's six in fellowship or 600 in fellowship. The the principle's exactly the same. That in that local assembly, God has placed those he has saved by his grace and he has placed them there to fulfill particular functions. 
And the God who created your body in the womb and formed it and put in all those different organs and, uh, and all those different things that do different jobs, the same God, the same almighty God, will never give you a function to perform that he hasn't fitted you for. Do you see that? He'll not do that. He'll not set a member in the body, may we say it reverently, he'll not put a round peg into a square hole. So, he has a purpose for you. You say, but brother, I'm not long saved, you know. I, I don't know very much. He's still got a place for you in the assembly. He's got a function for you there. I've been in a number of assemblies over the course of my lifetime because of moving with work and so forth. And in every local assembly, as I look back, I see that, that God graciously gave me work to do that was in keeping with my physical and spiritual ability. Do you have that sense of fulfillment in a local assembly? Are you really committed to the thing? Or is it a case of you'll go to the special meetings and you'll get to the meeting if you can, but you've never really realized, perhaps, that for you to be at that meeting is every bit as important as the preacher being at that meeting. That you have a commitment to that local assembly and an importance that is every bit as true as that of the overseer. And it's strange how that sometimes we look at the the systems of Christendom, which don't follow the word of God, uh, and we say, of course, they have this big error of a, of, a, of a clergy, a clerisy, ordained men with titles, and then there's the laity. So the clergy do everything and the laity sit and listen. And we see that in Christendom and we say that's wrong, that's not what the Bible teaches and yet very often in a local assembly, that's exactly what we practice. We never call them that. We never call them the clergy and the laity. But that's effectively what we, the way we behave sometimes. In chapter 11, a principle is stated. A question is asked. And Paul says, does not nature itself teach you? Well, it does. That's the great principle that runs through these chapters. And now, if we may, we're looking at Psalm 139, as we looked at it last night, and we're looking at 1 Corinthians 12 tonight, and we're saying that what God did and does for the human body in the womb, he does for the church spiritually. Do you have that sense? First of all, that sense, that realization, that 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 happy thought based on New Testament doctrine that I'm not in a local assembly because I've chosen it. I'm in local assembly fellowship because God has chosen me and he's put me there. And then if it is that you're not sure what you're supposed to be doing. Remember, because God is a God of order and God has set every member in the body, it's not up to you to decide what you want to do and have a stab at it. Well, I don't mind helping out so long as I can do such and such. I don't mind helping out so long as I can do this. Well, I think I'd be pretty good at doing that. Oh, no, that's not the way. 
Remember when Saul of Tarsus got saved? As God arrested him, the glory of the risen Lord arrested him on the road to Damascus. And the first thing that rang out from the heart of that dear man, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Have you ever asked the Lord? Young person, young brother, young sister, have you ever asked the Lord in honesty, Lord, what do you want me to do? Show me, please. Show me what, I, what you want me to do now, today. What am I to do today? See, this is very different teaching from the idea that somehow when you got saved, there was a, a gift given to you, almost like a chip put in a circuit, that is going to make you be something. It doesn't work like that. I'll tell you how it does work, though. God anticipates that every Christian, old and young, male and female, will spend time reading his word. And spend time speaking to God in prayer. And the way that you will know what God would have you to do in a local assembly, and in support of that assembly at any given time, he'll speak to you through his word. And you'll speak to him in prayer, and he'll speak to you through... It's not, it's not difficult not mysterious but it is a discipline when the people of God were making provision for God's house in the building of the tabernacle when the people of God were making provision for the house they brought so much stuff that Moses had to tell them to stop Wouldn't that be a great problem for the overseers to face? Wouldn't it be lovely if at a meeting on behalf of the overseers, one of the brethren stood up and he said, now look, dear saints of God, we've got something to say to you. Uh, you're all doing too much. That's what Moses had to tell the people. You're all bringing too much. And what had happened is that the Lord had stirred up their hearts and the people brought for the house whatever they had to bring. Now remember, when they came out of Egypt, God had told them three times over, he says, now when you go out of Egypt, I'm going to spoil the Egyptians. I'm going to spoil them. And uh, it would have been the most remarkable thing that as, as just before Israel came out of Egypt, these slaves left the land of their bondage, God put it into the heart of the Egyptians to give them all their wealth. So here's a young, here's a young Hebrew maid, and she's a, a house servant to one of these Egyptian ladies. And this young Hebrew maid, she's all excited that the words, the words spreading around. God is going to deliver us. Our God is going to take us out of Egypt. And it's put into her heart, and bravely she says to her mistress, she says, Madam, see that lovely gold necklace you have? I, I want it, please. And instead of getting beaten, as she might have expected for her insolence, instead the lady takes off the necklace, she gives it to her, and she says, Now, now just wait there, my dear. She said, I've more of this stuff upstairs. You just wait, I'll go and get it. And she came down and she laden her with bracelets and rings. and That's how it happened. Well, if it didn't, you tell me how it did happen. The children of Israel came up out of Egypt and they were laden with all the treasures of Egypt. 
It was theirs. It was really in lieu of all the wages that they'd been deprived of over the years, I suppose. And all the stuff that they brought out of Egypt was theirs. Now a few months later, God says to them, he says, look, I I want you to build a house for me. And I want you to bring out of a willing heart, I'm not going to force you to do it, but I want you out of a willing heart to bring me the materials that I need to build this house. Have you ever wondered where the tabernacle came from? Uh, Again, I'm not being flippant for the sake of it, I'm not being irreverent, but you know, you couldn't just go down to the Home Depot when you're in the middle of the wilderness. Where did it all come from? The gold, the silver, the copper, the fine linen, the purple, the blue, the scarlet, all the things that went into the... Where did it all come? Dear saints, it all came out of Egypt. And in fact, when they brought it, and Moses eventually had to say, now look, you've, you've brought too much, we've more than enough. Stop, stop. And then that great pile of all those different assorted materials sanctified it unto God you see none of that material was evil in itself oh there may well have been some lovely gold necklace and it's it's fashioned in the image of the god Horus or one of the other Egyptian gods so it's evil in its purpose and it's evil in its effect But it's not evil in itself, it's just gold. So it was all sanctified unto God. So here's a big heap of stuff and out of all that different material that the people had brought, God is now going to supernaturally enable men like Aholiab and Bezalel in Exodus 36. He's going to supernaturally enable them to do what they couldn't do by themselves And the Spirit of God is going to use them to fashion all this material. And they're going to build the furniture of the house. They're going to actually beat out of one piece of gold that mercy seat with its beautiful cherubim facing inwards, their wings outspread. Far beyond man's invention to do that. But the Holy Spirit enabled them to do it. But then we think of how a local assembly prospers. You say, well, what's the link? Well, the link is simple. First of all, what I've just described was how the first house, the physical representation of the house of the Lord, how that was provided for and how it was built. And, of course, it, in turn, was based on God's creatorial principles because what did God do when he created the universe? He, first of all, created, I speak reverently, a great pile of stuff. God didn't speak in Genesis 1-1 and a beautiful globe come into being. He didn't do that. There is a word in the Hebrew language for an original act of creation. It's only used three times. Three verses of Genesis chapter 1. It's used in the first verse. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He called out of nothing... All the materials for the universe. They weren't in place yet. It's a bit like some great project where all the materials for that project 
are brought in, all the materials that will go into the finished article, and that's what God did at the beginning. He simply called out of nothing the materials of the universe. And that's why our Bible tells us that initially it was without form. And it was void, that is, it wasn't yet ready for purpose. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then the Spirit of God moved. Your margin might tell you that he brooded or he fluttered. It was almost like a wave motion. Very interesting when really most energy is in waveform today. And the Spirit of God brought life into that material. And then, in, in the rest, up until verse 21 of Genesis chapter 1, God is simply taking the materials that he called into being, the raw materials, and he then goes on to fashion them. So cows and ducks and lizards, they weren't called out of nothing. They were fashioned out of material God had made. So was man. Except that. Except that. When man was made, the Spirit of God uses that word for original creation again. So although he was made from the dust of the earth, the difference is this. In Genesis 1.1, material was created out of nothing. Zero. But when man was created, dust was used... But there was a creation. There was a formation that was different from everything else. God is showing that man is absolutely distinct and different from everything else in his creation. Why? Because man is going to be in the image and the likeness of God. So if God begins with a pile of material and he fashions it and he forms it, he makes something that's going to be a reflection of his own being. A reflection of his own being is what the Bible calls glory. Glory is the visible demonstration of an otherwise hidden virtue. God is spirit. No man has seen God at any time. So if we're to know anything about God, he has to manifest himself. He has to reveal himself in a way that man can see and understand. And so God is going to first of all declare his glory. He's going to give expression to his inner virtue and character. He's going to do it in creation. And he's going to create material out of nothing. He's going to create a man out of that material. And it's all going to be for his purpose. So when he makes the first representation of his house on earth, he does the same thing. A whole pile of material. And then it's fashioned by a holy Abba Bezalel. And then when it's all set up in Exodus 40, then God comes and his glory fills the house. See, where the church is concerned, you could go back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is that chapter that... <clears throat> contextually follows hard on the heels of chapter 8. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans are very, very instructive and important chapters, but they are in brackets. They are a parenthesis. 
They're really the, the chapters in which Paul deals with the assumed questions and objections of his Jewish readers who might be saying, look, Paul, if everything you've told us about Jew and Gentile being equal in the sight of God and there's no difference and all have sinned and we can only ever be saved by faith in Christ, what has happened to all God's promises to us as a nation? I mean, wasn't Israel special to God? What's he done? Has he forgotten all about us? Has he cancelled all of that? So Paul takes time out in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans to say, no, no, this is how God dealt with you in the past. Chapter 9. This is how God's dealing with the nation today. Chapter 10. This is how he's going to deal with you in the future. Chapter 11. So those three chapters are, are as though they are in brackets. So you can come from the end of chapter 8 of Romans and read straight into chapter 12 and it'll make complete sense. Try it sometime. So chapter 8 has finished with that mighty conclusion. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Wonderful, isn't it? We've moved from the beginning of the epistle where we're all under condemnation. And then there's the great truth of redemption and justification and sanctification and glorification. And the question's asked, who will now lay any charge to God's elect? And the answer comes, there's nothing in or on or under the earth that it can in any way bring a charge against you or against me. So thorough, so absolutely complete and perfect is the redemptive work of Christ on your behalf and mine. So complete is the cancelling of our sins. There's only one who could possibly condemn. And that's God. But says Paul, he's not going to condemn because he's the one who justified us. Well, Christ. Christ could condemn. Well, sure, he could, says Paul, but he's the one who died for us. No, he says, there's never again going to be a righteous accusation against the people of God. There's nothing that can separate us from his love. And then you come into chapter 12 and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye yield your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And he then goes on to describe the fact that, that to every one of us, has been given, according to the grace of God, the measure of faith. What does that mean? God has given unto every one of us, that's unto you as a Christian, you have been given by God what Paul calls the measure of faith. Well, it's not a difficult concept really. Yesterday, um, I began the day driving in New Brunswick, Canada, I was measuring distance and speed by kilometers. I came across the border into the US and because of these modern systems on cars now I pressed a couple buttons and now the instrument on the dash is showing everything in miles. What have I done? I've changed the measure, the system, the means by which I measure something. I simply changed it from one set of units to another. Now says Paul to the Romans, God has given unto every one of us by his grace the measure of faith. That is, we now weigh things up. We now calculate things. Not by sight 
and not using the systems and the standards of this world, we do so using the measure of faith. It's a completely new system of measurement. It sees things through the divine eyes, not through the eyes of men. And that's why he says to the, these Roman believers now, he says, uh, you're none, of a, none of you to think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. But you are to take stock of who you are and what you are and what you have. You're to recognize that when Christ saved you, he saved the whole package that makes you, you. And so you have abilities that are physical, you have abilities that are mental, you have resources, you have strengths, everything that makes you, you. And if you looked at it all using the measure of this world, you would say, well, I'm one day going to be a captain of industry, or one day I'm going to be a mighty athlete, or I'm going to be this, or I'm going to be that. Paul says, no, now God has saved you. Now you have an appreciation of everything Christ has done for you. You now use the measure of faith. And you look at all these things and you measure them in a completely different way. You value them in a completely different way. And he says, now having taken an assessment of everything that you have and everything you are, your responsibility as a new priest before God is to lay everything on the altar of sacrifice for Christ. For the simple reason that he's purchased you. He's bought you. He paid for you in his own life's blood. So you don't have anything that's yours. No, seriously, you don't. Your time isn't yours. Your resources aren't yours. Your strengths aren't yours. They all belong to him. Now whether you reckon that or not is a different thing. My wife sometimes gets a little bit cross because our daughter-in-law, we love her dearly, but you know, the daughter-in-law comes and she'll say, uh, can, can we borrow such and such please? Maybe the lawnmower. You know. Okay, so you let her borrow the lawnmower. And when you eventually get it back, it's trashed. So she said, oh, it's not so much our mind that the lawnmower is trashed. You know, it's a lawnmower. You can get another one. But, you know, why don't they take care of these things? I mean, we were brought up, if you borrowed something for any reason at all, you took tremendous care of it because it's not yours. Ah, my dear brother, dear sister, it's challenging, isn't it? Every time I use resources for me and for selfish purposes and live my life as though I belong to me, I'm actually appropriating resources that belong to Christ. Because they're not mine. I'm sorry if this is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me too, remember. I'll be the first one put to the test on this. This is the truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Ye are not your own. Ye have been bought with a price. And that price is the precious blood of Christ. But you see, the wonderful thing is, just as God, with his people Israel, he didn't say to them, now look, when I brought you out of Egypt, I made sure that you came out loaded with gold and silver and stuff. Now you give it all back to me. He doesn't do that. And the Lord Jesus won't do that with you either. 
just remember that one day you're going to look into his face very soon you're going to look into his face at the judgment seat of Christ and you're going to have to give account for it all so am I so am I I remember once coming back from India where I'd been amongst terribly poverty stricken saints and within a few days I was having meetings back in the UK and staying in a home very nice home and the dear lady looking for something to talk about I guess she just said to her husband she said you know honey I've been thinking I can't live with these drapes another week she said you know since we got the new suite since we got this new leather uh, suite here you know it just doesn't go now with respect I mean it's, it's up to her it's bef- between them and the Lord I, I just couldn't help but think well what this dear lady is probably going to drop on a set of drapes in the next week would probably lift several Indian families out of poverty for a year or two. So, you know, that's, that's up to her. That's, that's, she's going to answer for that before the Lord. But don't we get complacent about things? Don't we really? Don't we fall into the trap of thinking that, that it's mine? <laughs> it's mine. It's not. It's, it's everything we have is given to us in stewardship. It's given to us to, to look after and to maintain and to use wisely for the Lord who died to save us. And the wonderful thing is, you see, that, that, that let, let's just follow some of those Israelites as they're bringing their material for this new house that God wants them to build. And uh, here's a lady, she's coming along, she's carrying a golden jug. I mean, the thing's worth a bomb. She's carrying this golden jug. And there's another lady gets in step beside her and she said, are you going where I'm going? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we're taking stuff for this new house for the Lord. Are you taking that seriously? Is that, that, is that really gold? Yes, it's gold. What are you bringing? I'm ashamed to tell you. No, seriously, what are you bringing? It doesn't matter. You, no, what are you bringing? Well, I've... I've got this wooden box. It's what my mistress used to keep her, her jewelry in, but I don't have a jewelry, I just have the box that it was in. Golden jug? Wooden box? The measure of this world says immensely valuable, as good as junk. The measure of faith says equally precious to God, equally needed in that house because the wooden pins that would hold the ropes, that would hold the stays, that would hold the bars, that would hold the whole thing up, they're just as important as the golden vessels. See, don't compare what what you apparently are bringing to the house with what someone else is apparently bringing to the house. That's the measure of this world. Just bring what you can. Bring what you've got. God won't expect you to bring what you haven't got. And he won't expect you to do what you cannot do. But the idea that somehow he put a chip in my circuit and didn't put it in yours, so that makes me have to do something and you don't have to do anything, that's totally and utterly wrong. The Bible doesn't support that at all. Because in this body... Every member has been placed with tremendous precision. Every member has a function. And if 
one doesn't fulfill their function, then there's something sick about the body. You see that? How's your commitment to the local assembly? I, I mean your commitment. Not just do you go to meetings when you can get to meetings, but, but seriously, are they at the center of your life? The work of the local assembly. What can I be doing? What can I be doing to help the saints and to further the work of the Lord? And you say, brother, I genuinely, seriously, I've been looking, I don't know what to do. Well, have you spoken to the Lord about it? I, I, I make no apology that this is simple ministry. It is simple. You have to commit these things to the Lord. That's what Romans 12 is about. And you have to lay on the line what the Lord has given you. Now, please, we've a little experience of this. And we had great problems of this when, when the time came as we realized the Lord was calling to full-time service for him. And, and things we didn't think were, mattered much to us suddenly took on huge proportions. But we learned this. That when you have the courage and the devotion to lay everything on the line for Christ, he's not going to take it all away. You don't have to worry about that. What he wants to know is it's all at his disposal. Not 75% and you keep the rest. Because he's not Lord at all if that's how you think. The measure of faith weighs up everything I am and everything I have and says it all belongs to Christ. Because I belong to Christ. Because he shed his blood to purchase me. That's not difficult. I mean, it's a diff we'll never explore the depth and the weight of it, but the principle's not difficult. I am his. And the Bible tells me that. So in this body, the body of Christ, and the body-like local assembly that I'm privileged to be a part of, there's only one answer. That's total commitment. That's me seeking the Lord's mind and will and putting everything I am and everything I have into it. He's not going to strip you of your possessions. He's not going to strip you and leave you living in poverty. The Lord doesn't work like that. You're his redeemed people. But if you're not careful, the things that you count as precious, he might take those away to teach you a lesson. He might. He just wants our willing devotion. If he wanted robots, he could have created an army of them. He doesn't want robots. He wants men and women to love him for himself and to serve him out of a sense of gratitude and adoration. And in this wonderful body-like company that's known as a local assembly of Christians, he wants those who are unreservedly doing what they can for him and each believer likewise respecting what the other is bringing for the Lord. We're not good at it, you know. You, you don't mind me speaking like that, I hope. I'm talking generally. We're not good at it. We put some men on pedestals and we look down on others and there's not one of us qualified to measure what another believer is doing for Christ. Do you understand that? There's not one of us qualified to measure that. That's why, thank God, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and not before the judgment seat of our brethren. He knows. 
He knows what's being done. And in a great house where a man has many servants, it may be that he's expecting a particular guest one day, an important guest. And in the great house, he might say to one of his trusted servants, you stand by that door. I don't know what time this man's going to come. But when he comes, I'm confident you'll give him the best of greetings. Now you just stand there and wait for him. And then he might turn to other of his servants and say, now I have a, I have a very special guest coming today and we're going to have a big dinner. And away you go and get everything ready. And while they're running up and down and collecting plates and cups and saucers and flying around getting a big table ready, they keep looking at this one man and he's standing by the door. Oh, they'll all have the comments. Right, some people have it cushy. He's lazy. He's this. He's that. He's not. He's just doing what the master told him. You're not qualified, my dear brother, my dear sister, to judge me. And with deep respect to you, I'm not qualified to judge you either. We're not qualified to judge each other. God preserve us from that. If each of us is looking to the Lord and each of us is committed to the Lord, let us simply do what the Lord would have us to do. And I'll tell you this. If you don't think you're getting much out of the local assembly at the moment, if you're finding it a bit heavy going, put your back into it. And you'll find that the Lord will reward you more liberally than you could ever have thought. There'll be an enjoyment and a contentment in your soul because he is the most loyal and faithful of masters. Doth not nature itself teach you? In the same way as he created the world, he formed his first house, and he does so today, each bringing what they can, and he'll take all that mass of stuff, and he'll sanctify it to himself, and he'll form something that is precious for his glory. It's a great thing to be in God's assembly, you know. Give it everything. Give it your all, and do it for Christ. Christ.